These churches are real churches that Jesus uh, was speaking to at that time, filled with real people going through real struggles. But they're also representative churches, that in these real churches going through real things, we discover things that we as the church throughout the ages need to know and guard against and be aware of and uh, protect ourselves from. So we come to the letter to the church in Pergamum, Revelation 2, and I'll be reading verses 12 to 17. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, that you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So Lord, as we sit under it this morning, may the truth of your word be like a guard and protector against error. And Lord, may the convicting power of your word be like a sword that cuts away the sin that so easily entangles us so often. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my first experience deep sea fishing in Florida was a memorable experience for all the wrong reasons. In fact, after I was done, I thought, you know, I could never do that again, and I think I'd live a happy life. And it's because of the following reasons. Our expedition started at such an ungodly hour that I spent the majority of the trip feeling as if I was on the edge of exhaustion. That was a living zombie on the boat. And I forgot my coffee. And so my caffeine headache was just nagging enough throughout the day to keep me awake, feeling miserable and tired. And then thinking that seasickness was only something that sissies suffer from, I did not take the Dramamine that was offered to me, nor did I wear one of those big, funny looking hats to guard me from the sun. As the saying goes, pride cometh before the fall. So I spent most of the time pleading with myself, please do not throw up, please do not throw up, please do not throw up. Well, on the bright side, my nausea helped me forget about my nagging caffeine headache and how tired I was. But that's not the most memorable aspect of this trip. The most memorable part was when we discovered that the boat we were in, which I was feeling nauseous on, was taking on water and was slowly starting to sink. You see, we were catching bait fish at the beginning, and we were putting the bait fish in the boat's live well to keep them alive so you could catch the bigger fish. Well, in order to fill the live well on this boat, you had to unplug the valve drain that lets water in to the live well. Well, we were so busy catching bait fish, putting it in the live well, that no one bothered to put the valve plug back on the thing that fills up the live well. And now by experience, I discovered that that is a pretty big oversight. Because even though it's quite a small hole that lets in water slowly, if ignored long enough, it can cause quite a big problem. 
So we're driving to our first fishing spot. We're going at quite high speeds. One, it's, it's one of those speeds where the boat should be leveling out. The boat's not leveling out. The, the front end of the boat is still sitting up. In fact, the, the front end of the boat is going higher as we go faster. So then we discover that not only is the boat tilting up higher than it should be, but there's a decent amount of water pooling in the back of the boat near the engine. And so panic sets in because it's, it's Houston, we have a problem. But Houston, we don't know what the problem is. And so someone looks in the live well and they see the valve plane, the, the valve, uh, uh, valve hole plug sitting right there floating with the bait fish. And so they put it back in. And thankfully, there's a little thing you can run to, to empty out some of the water. And we get the water out of the boat and we went back to fishing as we should have. But a valuable lesson was learned that day. It's great when the boat is on the water, but it is not so great when the water gets on the boat. Those are two different things and you don't want the second one. Well, in a similar way, Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum teaches a similar lesson. The church is to be in the world, but make sure that the world does not get into the church. Those are two different things. One is very dangerous. And what I mean by make sure that the world doesn't get into the church is, I don't mean don't let any sinners come in and pollute the church. No hypocrites allowed in the church. If that were the case, I would probably be the only member left in this church. Okay? It's, it's lonely at the top. <laughs> the, the church would be empty. Okay? What I mean by the church is in the world, but don't let the world in the church, is the church always needs to guard against allowing the priorities, the patterns of thinking, and the practices that mark this fallen sinful world from being adopted as their own strategies and practices and habits. We always need to make sure that this is what guides us, what defines who we are, what determines how we live and behave, not the world. And the way that the world gets into the church is through the, so, the slow and subtle leak of compromise. Compromise is that unplugged valve drain that fills the boat of the church slowly and subtly and threatens to sink it if we do not put that plug back in. And so this is the message to the church that we need to hear through this letter. The church is to be devoted to Christ and distinct from the world. Therefore, we must guard against the corrupting, sinking influence of compromise. The church is to be devoted to Christ and distinct from the world. And to do that, we must guard against the corrupting, sinking influence of compromise. So how do we do that? How do we guard against compromise so that we remain devoted to Christ purely and distinct from the world in holiness? Well, first, we guard against compromise by recognizing the spiritual battlefield that we reside in. We recognize the spiritual battlefield that we reside in. So if you look at the beginning and end of verse 13, Jesus lets the church know that he knows where they live. And he doesn't call it by its name. He calls it by what it is. He lets the church know that they live in a very dark and uneasy place to live. So look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Then the very end of verse 13, he says, where Satan dwells. So think of Pergamum like the Las Vegas of its day. What, we know the, the metaphor of Las Vegas. It's sin city. Well, Pergamum was Satan city, meaning that the spiritual atmosphere was so thick with blatant idolatry and immorality that there was no mistaking that Satan had, as it were, made this the home base of his spiritual warfare operations. 
And this was tangibly demonstrated in a number of ways. So if you had lived in Pergamum at the time, you'd have seen 800 feet above the city for all to see a large altar dedicated to Zeus, who was apparently the head of the pantheon of the gods of Greek and Rome. But also Pergamum had a center of worship to Dionysus or Bacchus, you might know the name by, who was the god of wine and merriment. But also it was a center of worship to Athena or Minerva, who was the goddess of wisdom and warfare. But it doesn't stop there. The most prominent center of worship was dedicated to Asclepius. And Asclepius was considered to be the god of medicine and healing. So if you've ever seen the, the symbol of medicine, it's a symbol of a snake wrapped around a staff. Well, that's Asclepius's uh, image and symbol. And some interpreters of the Bible believe that Jesus was subtly hinting at this big prominent center of worship to Asclepius and the fact that it's a serpent symbol when he says that Pergamum is Satan's city. It's where his throne dwells because Satan is that ancient serpent that we're going to learn more about throughout the book of Revelation. And so for the believers in Pergamum, the sheer volume of paganism, the myriad of false gods that were tempting them away from the true God, should have been enough to convince them that they lived in enemy-occupied territory. They were behind enemy lines, as it were. And they resided on a spiritual battlefield in which a war for their affection and their allegiance and their attention was being waged 365-24-7. And one of the ways that compromise creeps in is when we get too comfortable on the spiritual battlefield and forget that we exist and live on a spiritual battlefield and then therefore let our spiritual guard down. So compromise comes when we, we get too comfortable. You become, uh, you lack vigilance and diligence and you let your spiritual guard down. And make no mistake, we reside in just as much of a spiritual battlefield as they did. But the tactics of the enemy are different and the spiritual battlefield looks much different. There's a difference between overt and covert warfare. We live in the days, I would say, of covert warfare. We don't go out and face a spiritual army that has muskets on the battlefield with you know, different colored uniforms on. That, that was a different day. We live kind of in the day of drone warfare, more covert warfare when it comes to spiritual battles. Because Satan's tactic in, Perman, in Pergamum was to set up an all-out assault on their spiritual devotion to Christ by a barrage of opportunities to turn to other gods and other practices that were contrary to the scriptures. Satan's tactic in South Florida is to disguise the idols like a Trojan horse, so that we would bring them into our hearts and lives without even realizing the spiritual damage they're doing to us. And so are you aware of the spiritual battles that are raging in this place that we live? Are you aware of the unique temptations we face because of this unique battlefield that we reside in? So with all the wealth that we see around us, are you guarding your heart from the love of money? With all the obsession over material possessions, do you still believe and live in the light of the truth that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions? With all the inordinate devotion to career and athletic success, do you still believe and live in light of the truth that what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul in ambition? And with all the obsessions over external beauty and external image, do you still believe that the beauty that God delights in the most is the beauty of internal godly character? You know, South Florida, it is a wonderful place to live. Don't, don't hear me boohooing this. I don't want you guys to move away. In fact, that would, I want you to stay here. 
because this is a wonderful place to live with displays of God's creativity and beauty. The fingerprints of his handiwork is everywhere you look in this place. But it is still enemy-occupied territory. We live in, in brackish waters, as it were, that there is the, the fresh water of God's goodness and grace shining through in the beauty of this world, but there is the salt water of the fall, the sinfulness that taints and uh, latches onto, and it's like a parasite on everything that God made good. And so the temptations are almost as prominent as the beauties of the place that we live in. Some would say even more. So it's one thing to have a home in South Florida. It's another thing for South Florida to make up a home in your heart. And so where, where are you? So we must guard against compromise by recognizing the spiritual battlefield we reside in. Well, secondly, we must guard against compromise by learning from the example of faithful witnesses who have gone before us. So Jesus is acknowledging all the things that they need to be encouraged about in verse 13. And so he, he says this, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. So he is encouraged by them. Living in this place that they live, Satan City, he says, despite all the idols that they could have latched their hearts onto, they have held fast to Christ. Despite how much easier and comfortable and peaceful life would have been if they would have denied Christ, they have not denied his name. And so Jesus then goes on to remind them of a particular member of their church whose example and testimony he does not want them to forget. So look there towards the end of verse 13. He says, You did not deny my name, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. So it's as if Jesus is saying to them, Don't forget Antipas. Don't forget the example of your faithful brother in Christ. We don't know much about Antipas, but we know he was a member of this church. He was known by the people that Jesus is writing to because he faithfully demonstrated what it looks like to live in Satan's city in an uncompromising way to the ultimate point of death. And so Jesus is saying, if you want an example of uncompromising faithfulness, remember Antipas. Look to my faithful witness. Look how he held fast to Christ and follow that. I think the reason he does this is because as humans created in the image of God, we are hardwired to imitate those who influence us. It's just part of our nature and our makeup. We imitate those who influence us. And we see this in kind of silly, non-serious ways, like the picture of a kid who's in the workshop with his dad who has a real hammer, but he has a Fisher-Price hammer, and he's hammering fake nails with his imagination because he wants to do what dad's doing. But then there are serious examples of imitating those who influence us. Like, for example, there was a young man in 2015 who spent $100,000 on plastic surgery so that he could look like Justin Bieber. I don't know what's worse, that he spent $100,000 on plastic surgery or that he wanted to look like Justin Bieber. <laughs> we imitate those who influence us in silly and extreme ways. The question is not if you're being influenced by someone and therefore imitating them, but who is influencing you and how are you imitating them? And so one of the ways that compromise creeps into the church in our lives is when we allow ourselves to be influenced by the wrong kind of people, the wrong icons, the wrong idols of culture. And so who are the people you look up to and say, I wish I could be like them. If I could trade places with anyone, I would trade places with that person. And what is it about those people that makes you look up to them? Because that reveals a lot about what you value, what influences your values. Because the world holds before us all sorts of counterfeit influencers. In fact, that's a popular term used on social media. 
And it says, you should want to look like them. You should want the lifestyle they have. You should want to live like them and be as well-liked and as accepted by the culture as they are. But the Bible says that someone who is worth imitating and being influenced by is marked by three things. These three things. Character, character, character. That is what the Bible holds up as what we should value in someone who influences us and what we want to imitate in them. Faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to Christ. Antipas had nothing that the world would have valued. The the world would have never held up Antipas in Pergamum and said, we're going to build a statue to him because he was faithful to Christ unto death. But he had everything that Christ valued in someone who should influence influence us and who we should imitate, which is why Christ was delighted to claim him as my faithful witness. Look at my faithful witness. Imitate him as he imitated me. Well, one of the ways to pursue influence and imitation in a godly way is to find someone whose character and conduct you want to emulate and spend time with them. Ask them intentional questions about their life and their practices, their habits, their their thinking patterns. Invite yourself over to dinner at their house if you can. Stalk them. Whatever it takes, find a godly example so that you can be influenced by them. Now, character doesn't come by osmosis. You can't just stand next to them and get it. But it does come through relationship, through having these intentional, meaningful connections with other people whose influence rubs off on us over time. Well, another way to pursue a godly practice of influence and imitation is to read biographies of faithful believers who have gone before us. This is one of my my favorite kind of reading habits is to take biographies, which so wonderfully, tangibly lay out and demonstrate what does it look like to live the Christian life? These are real people who went through real things and they show us what does it look like to follow God in the ups and downs, the trials and triumphs of life. And so this last year to the kids, I read biographies on Adoniram Judson, a faithful missionary. Corey Tenboom, who survived faithfully through World War II and, and Nazi occupancy. Elizabeth Elliot, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. These are all wonderful people I would commend to you to learn from their examples. How did they live faithfully for Christ in their own context and time? And you'll be humbled, you'll be encouraged, and it will push you to hold fast to Christ and be a faithful witness for him. So we guard against compromise by learning from the examples of faithful witnesses who have gone before us. In the third place, we guard against compromise by removing all corrupting influences. We guard against compromise by locating, plugging, and removing all corrupting influences in the boat of the church and our hearts. So in our text, Jesus follows this word of encouragement, this godly example, with a word of correction. Look at verses 14 to the beginning of verse 16. He said, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So Jesus' correction of them is really the inverse of his encouragement to them. He said, in his encouragement, emulate this godly example of Antipas. But in his correction of them, he says, get rid of this ungodly example of the Nicolaitans in your midst who are doing what Balaam did to the Israelites in the Old Testament. This is the second time we've uh, been introduced to the Nicolaitans. And we have to be honest, we don't know exactly who they were. We're not told their identity. We're not told everything they taught. But we do know some things. We know what Jesus thought of them. In the letter to Ephesus, when we first were introduced to them in Revelation 2.6, Jesus says that he hates 
the work of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't have any affection for them at all, which means whatever they were doing was causing serious spiritual damage. This was causing a big leak in the boat, and Jesus hated it and wanted the church to get rid of it. We don't know much about them, but we do know why they were so problematic. This was not, the Nicolaitans were not this outside external threat that you could easily identify and needed to steer clear of. This was an inside job, which is what made it so dangerous. These people were infiltrating the church and bringing their doctrinal and ethical corruption inside. So it's as if the church in Pergamum was letting termites in a frame house and wasn't doing anything to get rid of them. And they were rotting the church from within. And we also know something of their teaching and influence because verse 14 compares the Nicolaitans to Balaam in the Old Testament. So verse 14 and 15, essentially the relationship is what Balaam was to the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Nicolaitans are to the church in Pergamum in the New Testament. So what was Balaam's influence on the people of Israel and how does that have a lesson for us today? Well, the story of Balaam is told in Numbers 22 to 24. You have to turn there, but you can read it later. And Balaam was essentially a sorcerer for hire, that somehow he had uh, unique access to the demonic false gods of the culture around them, and he could do things for the right price. Well, Balak, king of Moab, was looking for a sorcerer who could curse this little-known nation of Israel because he was threatened by them. So he finds Balaam, and the king of Moab hires Balaam to pronounce curses on the nation of Israel. And the reason he does that is the king of Moab has heard of the reputation of Israel's God. He heard what they did to the Egyptians, he heard what they did to some of the other armies, and he knows that they're getting closer and closer to Moab. And so he wants a way that he can uh, get rid of them and deal with them. So he hires Balaam. So Balaam, who wants the money, goes and pronounces or tries to pronounce a curse on Israel. And he tries three times, and three times he opens his mouth to curse Israel, and every time he opens his mouth, only blessing comes out. He's only able to bless the nation of Israel and this is actually an echo back to Genesis 12 when God made that first promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And even here, when someone tries to curse them, God superintends it for blessing. Well, plan A to curse Israel doesn't work. So Balaam proposes to King Balak plan B. He says, essentially, King Balak, I can't curse them. No matter how hard I try, I cannot curse them but I still want your money, so I actually know a way that we can corrupt them, or actually that we can get them to corrupt themselves. Here's what you do. Just send over the prettiest women of Moab. Send over your most enticing idols that offer the most enticing promises. Throw in some good food and drink, and the Israelites will take care of themselves. No cursing needed. And so when you turn to chapter 25 of Numbers, in the first three verses, you read that that's exactly what happens to the nation of Israel. They are drawn away by immorality and idolatry, and the curse comes on themselves because of their own sinfulness. So Balaam couldn't curse them, but he could internally corrupt them. He could give them a Trojan horse, as it were, or termites, and they would rot from the inside. And so what Jesus is saying in this letter to Pergamum is that that's exactly the strategy of the Nicolaitans. 
They had infiltrated the church of Pergamum and were convincingly teaching church members that it's okay to compromise with the culture around you and to engage in the immorality and idolatry to an extent that was going on uh, in the culture around them. And so we don't know exactly what their strategy was or what their slogans were, but perhaps it went something like this. You know, hey, church, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So let us continue in sin that grace may abound. Or maybe it went something like this. You know, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, so why can't we? Or maybe it went something like this. You know, how will we ever know how to properly evangelize the pagans if we don't know their sins from firsthand experience? You know, we're not going to be relevant to them if we don't really understand what's going on. Or many argue that it went something like this. We're going to get new bodies in the resurrection. And those new bodies will be perfect, free of any imperfections. And so what we do in this body doesn't really matter. What you do with your body now doesn't matter because you're going to get a new one. And so it is speculative. But whatever it was, it was effective and it was spiritually destructive. The Nicolaitans were coming. They were putting holes in the boat and it was filling up with water. But the worst part, the most disturbing part, is that the church knew that this was going on in their midst, among their people. And guess what they were doing about it? Nothing. That's, that's the easiest way to allow compromise and corruption to happen. Just do nothing. How do, you, do you want weeds to grow in your garden? I, I have the best advice for this. Do nothing. That's how weeds grow in your garden. In fact, they grow fast. So do nothing very quickly. You'll see what happens. They were tolerating this teaching and its practices and ignoring the fact that the ship of their church was taking on water and it was sinking. So you can think of it like this. The church in Pergamum had the opposite problem of the church in Ephesus. So in Ephesus... They were so doctrinally and ethically precise that they were neglecting love. They had forsaken their first love. They had forsaken the love they had at first. But the church at Pergamum, in their love, had fallen off the horse of doctrinal and ethical precision. They needed to be more precise in that area. So think about doctrine can make us cold and callous if it's not accompanied by love. But love can make us undiscerning and dismissive if it is not accompanied by doctrinal precision and ethical standing. So love, as biblically defined, this is key, love as biblically defined, not culturally defined, is intolerable of anything that threatens to compromise our devotion to Christ and distinctiveness from the world. Love is intolerable of anything that would threaten your pure and sincere devotion to Christ and his word Or to put it another way, worldliness, that which corrupts godly love, is anything that makes righteousness seem strange and sin seem normal. That's what worldliness is. And so in what ways have you sensed your love for Christ being corrupted by the draw to compromise with culture? What ways have you seen the termites of culture coming into your own life and threatening to erode your pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I find that one particular area that always needs evaluation and reassessment in my life, especially in this day and age, is our use of media and entertainment, both in the content of it and in the amount of it. Because sometimes the evil in our desires is not what we desire, but that we desire too much. It's sometimes not that we have something, but that we want it too much or spend too much time with it. And so is the content and amount of the entertainment you're consuming allowing the compromising influence of the culture to slowly creep in and fill the boat with water. 
It seems to be one of those most commonly neglected valve, uh, valve holes that we don't plug and we let water fill into it. And so what are the corrupting, or perhaps what are other corrupting and compromising influences that you notice in your own life? And what Jesus says in verse 16 is very clear. Therefore, repent. Meaning, whatever they are, you need to remove them. Whatever those corrupting, compromising influences are in your life, you need to remove them. Because repentance means taking decisive action to deal with whatever is harming your pure and sincere devotion to Christ and your distinctiveness from the world. So if there's water in the boat, repentance means finding the source of that drain valve that's unplugged, plugging it back in and doing whatever it takes to get the water then out of the boat so you do not make shipwreck of your faith. Well, fourthly, we guard against compromise by wielding the sword of Christ. We guard against compromise by wielding the sword of Christ. So Jesus identifies himself in verse 12 with this. Look at verse 12. He says, the one, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then look at the description that is again echoed when Jesus gives this warning in verse 16. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So a spiritual battlefield requires spiritual weapons. And the word of Christ is that weapon that Christ has given us by which we can defend the castle of the church and guard the door of our hearts. And so if you're going to fight off the enemy of air, if you're going to wage war against compromise, you cannot do it without taking up and wielding the sword of Christ. Which means to neglect the reading, teaching, the preaching of the word of Christ, is to stand on the battlefield unarmed. And an unarmed soldier is either a very vulnerable soldier or a dead soldier. And so to wield the sword of Christ, you first have to unsheathe it. You have to take it out of its hold. And the way you do that is through reading it, through hearing it preached, through listening to it on audio, whatever way you can get the word into your mind and heart, that's the way you unsheathe the sword. Because... It's one thing to have a Bible, but if you neglect the Bible, that's as good as having an unsheathed sword when you're facing the onslaught of an army that's coming against you. I mean, imagine, my kids are really into Lord of the Rings right now. Imagine Aragorn standing at Helm's Deep in the two towers, and he just leaves his sword in his scabbard. And he's like, you know, I, I just decided, I, it's too heavy, I don't want to take it out as the orcs are coming. You know, Lord of the Rings becomes a very short book at that point. A neglected Bible is as good as an unsheathed sword. But we not only want an unsheathed sword, we want a sharp sword. So in medieval times, the way blacksmiths would sharpen their sword is they would use something called a whetstone. So they would forge that sword and they would run it back and forth over and over again over this whetstone that was just sharp enough to sharpen the blade, but not too sharp that it would actually dull and affect the metal. There's this perfect stone that would sharpen the blade and they knew they were done when that sword was sharp enough to cut through the flesh of their enemies like butter, okay? That's the kind of sharp sword we want. And so what the whetstone is to a blacksmith, studying and discussing and memorizing and meditating is to sharpening the spiritual sword of the word of Christ. And so we unsheathe the sword of Christ by reading God's word and we sharpen it through meditating on what we've read. Well, the sword of Christ is not just a weapon that we use to fight against temptation. It's also a tool used by Christ 
to cut out the cancer of compromise from within. Sin no longer reigns over you if you're a believer in Christ, but it does remain in you. And at times, sin becomes like a tumor that concentrates so much in one area of our hearts and lives that it becomes so spiritually dangerous to us that Christ has to cut it out. And so Christ comes to us with a sharp sword of his word and he wields it like a surgeon's scalpel on us. It's that sharp and he's that effective with it. But know that this surgeon's scalpel is one that he wounds only in order to heal. Only in order to heal. And he pierces only in order to make us more whole again and healthy. And so where in your heart and life is Christ pointing the sharp surgical sword of his word and saying, that right there needs to go. We need to deal with it. It's killing you, and so I'm going to kill it. And mark my words, cutting it out is painful. It is not pleasant. Well, Christ comes with the conviction of his word, but the pleasure you'll feel once it's removed and the freedom you'll feel from knowing the truth and the truth will set you free far exceeds the pain of it being cut out. Reminds me of that scene in The Voyage of the Untreader when uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub had a name that he almost deserved it. Was He became a dragon. He was so ugly and mean on, on the inside that he actually became what he was on the outside. He became a dragon. And he wants to be undragoned. And so Aslan comes to him and says, I'm going to have to remove the scales. You can't remove them yourselves. And it said that that first pierce of his claw went so deep it felt like it was going into his heart, but it only was relieved by the, by the freedom of knowing that the scales were once again coming off. And he was being undragoned. Some of you need to be undragoned. And what does that look like? Where is Christ pointing and saying, this, these need to go? We must guard against compromise by wielding and submitting to the sword of Christ. Finally, we guard against compromise by holding on to the better, more delectable promises of Christ. One of the reasons we compromise is because we buy into the deceptive and hollow promises of sin. Or to put it another way, every time you commit sin, you commit it because you believe the promise of sin over the promise of God. There's always a spiritual heart-level exchange going on when you sin. You're exchanging the truth for a lie. And half of the battle is knowing that that's where the battle is taking place. The other part of the battle is knowing and holding on to the better, more delectable promises of Christ. You have to fight fire with fire. So one of the deceptive promises that tempts us to compromise is that as Christians, we're told that we're missing out on what would truly make us happy and satisfied and fulfilled. We're we're, we're being told that all that's forbidden is only forbidden by God because he doesn't want to give us what is truly happy. And that if we just ignored what he said, we would actually find that fruit that is really delightful and more delectable. But look what Jesus says in 2.17. He says, to the one who conquers, to the one who does not give in to compromise, who continues to hold fast my name, I will give some of the hidden manna. In other words, dear believer, why are you feasting on the sinful snacks of the world? Why are you drawn after that which is ultimately poison, that which is an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure when the bread of life is freely offered to you. The bread of life that once you eat it, you will never hunger again. The bread of life that when you eat for all eternity will only abound and increase to your joy and delight. I think the reason it says hidden manna is because there's an idea in which what we're ultimately looking for is not present joy right here, right now, but knowing that ultimate joy is to come in the new heavens and new earth. There's a sense of delayed gratification that we struggle with nowadays, especially. 
We have Amazon Prime and fast food, and we, we struggle with delayed gratification. And part of the message of Revelation is the best is yet to come. Hold on, because what is going to be offered to you will far exceed all that this world holds out to you. And part of that is represented in this feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the one in which it's rich food of the choicest meat, well-aged wine that is the best. I don't like wine, but apparently there's going to be some good wine in heaven. And we get to sit down and feast with Christ. And so th- there's this wonderful illustration at the towards the end of the last battle. And the, the kids finally get into the true and real Narnia. And the first thing they see is this delightful, delectable fruit that is, it seems too good for them to be eat, for, for them to eat it. And it says this, everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, oh, this can't be meant for me. Surely we're not allowed to have this. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure, we needn't. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed and permitted. Here goes then, said Eustace, and they all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull, the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour. And I would add, and a mango was pulpy and stringy compared to it. And there were no seeds or stones and no wasps. If you had once eaten that fruit, all the nicest things in the world would taste like medicine after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it is unless you can get to that country and taste it for yourself. That's what you say. There's hidden, there's, there's fruit and food that is so delightful and delicious because of our perfect communion with him that there is no capacity we have on this earth yet to describe the joys of feasting with Christ. And so he says, hold on, hold fast my name. Well, another deceptive promise that we struggle with that tempts us to compromise is that if we do what the world does, we'll finally fit in. We'll finally belong and have fellowship with the group that we should really want to be a part of. Who, who likes being on the outside of an inside joke? Now, I, I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday. We have this idea that we want to belong. We want to fit in. We want to know that we're accepted. So why be distinct from the world when you could fit in? Why continue in holiness to Christ when you could just enjoy friendship with the world? And Jesus says this at the end of verse 17. And I will give him, the one who overcomes, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. As best as I can discern, the white stone is likely symbolic of a token that would have been granted to someone as a form of admission or membership into an exclusive or private place. And the new name is symbolic of the fact that as new creations in Christ Jesus, our old name, with all of its sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness that would forbid us from accessing this place of fellowship with Christ, has been replaced with a new name that is so unique and personal to us that only we and Christ know it. Because in heaven there is both this wonderful fulfillment of community where we all exist in perfect harmony and love and peace with one another and there's no hierarchy and struggle. But it's also this perfect place where you feel as if you were the only one there because Christ is so attentive and personal toward you and you have both of those things in their perfect extremes and balances. So Christ is saying with this stone, this white stone with this new name on it, is what the world offers you for fitting in 
and through compromise is not worth comparing to what I offer you through the road of faithfulness, through the road of holding fast my name and honoring me in the midst of all that would draw you away from me. All the fitting in and belonging and fellowship that you'll ever want is yours in overflowing abundance in Christ and will be yours in a always overflowing, always increasing measure in the new heavens and new earth to come. John Newton captured this truth so well in one of his hymns. He said this, Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. That's what is offered to those who cling to Christ, remain faithful to him. So may these truths guard you against compromise so you can remain devoted to Christ and distinct from the world. Well, as we close this sermon, would you turn with me to page eight in your bulletin? And let's remember as we're reading through Revelation that our ultimate application and hope is come Lord Jesus. So I'm going to read the words in italics at the bottom of page eight. Would you respond with the words there in bold? He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we do pray and ask that you would be gracious to us, that you would help us in the midst of the temptation to compromise, that you'd help us in all the subtle onslaughts to be pure and sincerely devoted to Christ, but that we would know that holiness is always for our good and always better. Lord, help us to cut through the lies and the deception and the propaganda of this world, and may righteousness not seem strange to us, but may sin seem strange to us. Lord, we pray and ask you to do what only you can do by your spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn in your bulletin to page 9 and 10, and we're going to stand together. We're going to sing about the church. We're going to sing the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ as Lord. Would you stand with me and sing that?